Section 11 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bryce Youngstown. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 4, Part 2. Anna Brangwen was faintly excited at the news of her cousin Will's coming to Ilkston. She knew plenty of young men, but they had never become real to her. She had seen in this young gallant a nose she liked, in that a pleasant mustache, in the other a nice way of wearing clothes, in one a ridiculous fringe of hair, in another a comical way of talking. They were objects of amusement and faint wonder to her rather than real beings, the young men. The only man she knew was her father, and, as he was something large, looming, a kind of godhead, he embraced all manhood for her, and other men were just incidental. She remembered her cousin Will, he had town clothes and was thin, with a very curious head, black as jet, with hair like sleek, thin fur. It was a curious head, it reminded her she knew not of what of some animal, some mysterious animal that lived in the darkness under the leaves and never came out, but which lived vividly, swift and intense. She always thought of him with that black, keen, blind head, and she considered him odd. He appeared at the marsh one Sunday morning, a rather long, thin youth with a bright face and a curious self-possession among his shyness, a native unawareness of what other people might be, since he was himself. When Anna came downstairs in her Sunday clothes, ready for church, he rose and greeted her conventionally, shaking hands. His manners were better than hers. She flushed. She noticed that he now had a thick fledge on his upper lip, a black, finely shaped line marking his wide mouth. It rather repelled her. It reminded her of the thin, fine fur of his hair. She was aware of something strange in him. His voice had rather high upper notes and very resonant middle notes. It was queer. She wondered why he did it. But he sat very naturally in the Marsh living room. He had some uncouthness, some natural self-possession of the Brangwins that made him at home there. Anna was rather troubled by the strangely intimate, affectionate way her father had towards this young man. He seemed gentle towards him. He put himself aside in order to fill out the young man. This irritated Anna. Father, she said abruptly, give me some collection. What collection, asked Brangwen. Don't be ridiculous, she cried, flushing. Nay, he said, what collection is this? You know, it's the first Sunday of the month. Anna stood confused. Why was he doing this? Why was he making her conspicuous before this stranger? I want some collection, she reasserted. So they says, he replied indifferently looking at her, then turning again to this nephew. She went forward and thrust her hand into his breeches pocket. He smoked steadily, making no resistance, talking to his nephew. Her hand groped about in his pocket, and then drew out his leathern purse. Her color was bright in her clear cheeks, her eyes shone. Brangwen's eyes were twinkling. The nephew sat sheepishly. Anna, in her finery, sat down and slid all the money into her lap. There was silver and gold. The youth could not help watching her. She was bent over the heap of money, fingering the different coins. I have a good mind to take half a sovereign, she said. 
and she looked up with glowing dark eyes. She met the light brown eyes of her cousin, close and intent upon her. She was startled. She laughed quickly and turned to her father. I've a good mind to take half a sovereign, our dad, she said. Yes, Nimblefinger, said her father. You take what's your own. Are you coming, our Anna? asked her brother from the door. She suddenly chilled to normal, forgetting both her father and her cousin. Yes, I'm ready, she said, taking sixpence from the heap of money and sliding the rest back into the purse, which she laid on the table. Give it here, said her father. Hastily, she thrust the purse into his pocket and was going out. You'd better go with him, lad, hadn't you, said the father to the nephew. Will Brangwen rose uncertainly. He had golden-brown, quick, steady eyes, like a bird's, like a hawk's, which cannot look afraid. Your cousin Will will come with you, said the father. Anna glanced at the strange youth again. She felt him waiting there for her to notice him. He was hovering on the edge of her consciousness, ready to come in. She did not want to look back at him. She was antagonistic to him. She waited without speaking. Her cousin took his hat and joined her. It was summer outside. Her brother Fred was plucking a sprig of flowery currant to put in his coat from the bush at the angle of the house. She took no notice. Her cousin followed just behind her. They were on the high road. She was aware of a strangeness in her being. It made her uncertain. She caught sight of the flowering current in her brother's buttonhole. Oh, our Fred, she cried, don't wear that stuff to go to church. Fred looked down protectively at the pink adornment on his breast. Why, I like it, he said. Then you're the only one who does, I'm sure, she said. And she turned to her cousin. Do you like the smell of it, she asked. He was there beside her, tall and uncouth, and yet self-possessed. It excited her. I can't say whether I do or not, he replied. Give it here, Fred. Don't have it smelling in church, she said to the little boy, her page. Her fair, small brother handed her the flower dutifully. She sniffed it and gave it without a word to her cousin for his judgment. He smelled the dangling flower curiously. It's a funny smell, he said, and suddenly she laughed and a quick light came on all their faces. There was a blithe trip in the small boy's walk. The bells were ringing. They were going up the summery hill in their Sunday clothes. Anna was very fine in a silk frock of brown and white stripes, tight along the arms and the body, bunched up very elegantly behind the skirt. There was something of the cavalier about Will Brangwen, and he was well-dressed. He walked along with the sprig of currant blossom dangling between his fingers, and none of them spoke. The sun shone brightly on little showers of buttercup down the bank. In the fields, the fool's parsley was foamy, held very high and proud above a number of flowers that flitted in the greenish twilight of the mowing grass below. They reached the church. Fred led the way to the pew, followed by the cousin, then Anna. She felt very conspicuous and important. Somehow this young man gave her away to other people. He stood aside and let her pass to her place, then sat next to her. It was a curious sensation to sit next to him. The color came streaming from the painted window above her. It lit on the dark wood of the pew, on the stone, worn aisle, on the pillar behind her cousin, and on her cousin's hands as they lay on his knees. She sat amid illumination, illumination and luminous shadow all around her, her soul very bright. She sat, without knowing it, 
conscious of the hands and motionless knees of her cousin. Something strange had entered into her world, something entirely strange and unlike what she knew. She was curiously elated. She sat in a glowing world of unreality, very delightful. A brooding light, like laughter, was in her eyes. She was aware of a strange influence entering into her, which she enjoyed. It was a dark, enriching influence she had not known before. She did not think of her cousin, but she was startled when his hands moved. She wished he would not say the responses so plainly. It diverted her from her vague enjoyment. Why would he obtrude and draw notice to himself? It was bad taste, but she went on all right till the hymn came. He stood up beside her to sing, and that pleased her. Then suddenly, at the very first word, his voice came strong and overriding, filling the church. He was singing the tenor. Her soul opened in amazement. His voice filled the church. It rang out like a trumpet and rang out again. She started to giggle over her hymn book. But he went on, perfectly steady. Up and down rang his voice, going its own way. She was helplessly shocked into laughter. Between moments of dead silence in herself, she shook with laughter. On came the laughter, seized her, and shook her till the tears were in her eyes. She was amazed and rather enjoyed it. And still the hymn rolled on, and still she laughed. She bent over her hymn book, crimson with confusion, but still her sides shook with laughter. She pretended to cough. She pretended to have a crumb in her throat. Fred was gazing up at her with clear blue eyes. She was recovering herself. And then a slur in the strong, blind voice at her side brought it all on again in a gust of mad laughter. She bent down to prayer in cold reproof of herself. And yet, as she knelt, little eddies of giggling went over her. The very sight of his knees on the praying cushion sent the little shock of laughter over her. She'd gathered herself together and sat with prim, pure face, white and pink and cold as a Christmas rose, her hands and her silk gloves folded on her lap, her dark eyes all vague, abstracted in a sort of dream, oblivious of everything. The sermon rolled on vaguely in a tide of pregnant peace. Her cousin took out his pocket handkerchief. He seemed to be drifted, absorbed into the sermon. He put his handkerchief to his face. Then something dropped on to his knee. There lay the bit of flowering current. He was looking down at it in real astonishment. A wild snort of laughter came from Anna. Everybody heard it was torture. He had shut the crumpled flower in his hand and was looking up again with the same absorbed attention to the sermon. Another snort of laughter from Anna. Fred nudged her remindingly. Her cousin sat motionless. Somehow he was aware that his face was red. She could feel him. His hand, closed over the flower, remained quite still, pretending to be normal. Another wild struggle in Anna's breast and the snort of laughter. She bent forward, shaking with laughter. It was now no joke. Fred was nudge-nudging at her. She nudged him back fiercely. Then another vicious spasm of laughter seized her. She tried to ward it off in a little cough. The cough ended in a suppressed whoop. She wanted to die, and the closed hand crept away to the pocket. Whilst she sat in taut suspense, the laughter rushed back at her, knowing he was fumbling in his pocket to shove the flower away. In the end, she felt weak, exhausted, and thoroughly depressed. A blankness of wincing depression came over her. She hated the presence of the other people, 
Her face became quite haughty. She was unaware of her cousin any more. When the collection arrived with the last hymn, her cousin was again singing resoundingly, and still it amused her. In spite of the shameful exhibition she had made of herself, it amused her still. She listened to it in a spell of amusement, and the bag was thrust in front of her, and her sixpence was mingled in the folds of her glove. In her haste to get it out, it flipped away and went twinkling in the next pew. She stood and giggled. She could not help it. She laughed outright, a figure of shame. "'What were you laughing about, our Anna?' asked Fred, the moment they were out of the church. "'Oh, I couldn't help it,' she said, in her careless, half-mocking fashion. "'I don't know why Cousin Will's singing sent me off.' "'What was there in my singing to make you laugh?' he asked. "'It was so loud,' she said. They did not look at each other, but they both laughed again, both reddening. "'What were you snorting and laughing for, our Anna?' asked Tom, the elder brother, at the dinner table, his hazel eyes bright with joy. "'Everybody stopped to look at you. Tom was in the choir.' She was aware of Will's eyes shining steadily upon her, waiting for her to speak. It was Cousin Will's singing, she said, at which her cousin burst into a suppressed, chuckling laugh, suddenly showing all his small, regular, rather sharp teeth, and just as quickly closing his mouth again. Has he got such a remarkable voice on him, then? asked Brangwen. No, it's not that, said Anna. Only it tickled me. I couldn't tell you why. And again a ripple of laughter went down the table. Will Brangwen thrust forward his dark face, his eyes dancing, and said, I'm in the choir of St. Nicholas. Oh, you go to church then, said Brangwen. Mother does, father doesn't, replied the youth. It was the little things, his movement, the funny tones of his voice that showed up big to Anna. The matter-of-fact things he said were absurd in contrast. The things her father said seemed meaningless and neutral. During the afternoon they sat in the parlor that smelled of geranium, and they ate cherries and talked. Will Brangwen was called on to give himself forth, and soon he was drawn out. He was interested in churches, in church architecture. The influence of Ruskin had stimulated him to a pleasure in the medieval forms. His talk was fragmentary, he was only half-articulate. But listening to him as he spoke of church after church, of nave and chancel and transept, of rude screen and font, of hatchet carving and molding and tracery, speaking always with close passion of particular things, particular places, there gathered in her heart a pregnant hush of churches, a mystery, a ponderous significance of bowed stone, a dim-colored light through which something took place obscurely, passing into darkness, a high delighted framework of the mystic screen, and beyond, in the furthest beyond, the altar. It was a very real experience. She was carried away, and the land seemed to be covered with a vast, mystic church, reserved in gloom, thrilled with an unknown presence. Almost it hurt her to look out of the window and see the lilacs towering in the vivid sunshine. Or was this the jeweled glass? He talked of Gothic and Renaissance and Perpendicular and Early English and Norman. The words thrilled her. Have you been to Southwell, he said? I was there at twelve o'clock at midday, eating my lunch in the churchyard, and the bells played to him. Eh, it's a fine minster, Southwell, heavy. It's got heavy, round arches, rather low, on thick pillars. It's grand the way those arches travel forward. There's a sedilia as well, pretty, 
but I like the main body of the church and that north porch. He was very much excited and filled with himself that afternoon. A flame kindled round him, making his experience passionate and glowing, burningly real. His uncle listened with twinkling eyes, half-moved. His aunt bent forward, her dark face, half-moved but held by other knowledge. Anna went with him. He returned to his lodging at night, treading quick, his eyes glittering and his face shining darkly as if he came from some passionate, vital tryst. The glow remained in him, the fire burned, his heart was fierce like a sun. He enjoyed his unknown life and his own self, and he was ready to go back to the marsh. Without knowing it, Anna was wanting him to come. In him she had escaped. In him the bounds of her experience were transgressed. He was the hole in the wall beyond which the sunshine blazed on an outside world. He came, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, talking again. There recurred the strange remote reality which carried everything before it. Sometimes he talked of his father, whom he hated with a hatred that was burningly close to love, of his mother, whom he loved, with a love that was keenly close to hatred or to revolt. His sentences were clumsy, he was only half-articulate, but he had the wonderful voice that could ring its vibration through the girl's soul, transport her into his feeling. Sometimes his voice was hot and declamatory, sometimes it had a strange, twanging, almost cat-like sound, sometimes it hesitated, puzzled, sometimes there was the break of a little laugh. Anna was taken by him. She loved the running flame that coursed through her as she listened to him and his mother and his father became to her two separate people in her life. For some weeks the youth came frequently and was received gladly by them all. He sat amongst them, his dark face glowing, an eagerness and a touch of derisiveness on his wide mouth, something grinning and twisted, his eyes always shining like a bird's, utterly without depth. There is no getting hold of the fellow, Brangwen irritably thought. He was like a grinning young tomcat that came when he thought he would, and without cognizance of the other person. At first the youth had looked towards Tom Brangwen when he talked, and then he looked towards his aunt for her appreciation, valuing it more than his uncle's. And then he turned to Anna, because from her he got what he wanted, which was not in the elder people. So the two young people, from being always attendant on the elder, began to draw apart and establish a separate kingdom. Sometimes Tom Brangwen was irritated. His nephew irritated him. The lad seemed to him too special, self-contained. His nature was fierce enough, but too much abstracted, like a separate thing, like a cat's nature. A cat could lie perfectly peacefully on the hearthrug whilst its master or mistress writhed in agony a yard away. It had nothing to do with other people's affairs. What did the lad really care about anything save his own instinctive affairs? Brangwen was irritated. Nevertheless, he liked and respected his nephew. Mrs. Brangwen was irritated by Anna, who was suddenly changed under the influence of the youth. The mother liked the boy. He was not quite an outsider. But she did not like her daughter to be so much under the spell. So that gradually the two young people drew apart, escaped from the elders to create a new thing by themselves. He worked in the garden to propitiate his uncle, he talked churches to propitiate his aunt. He followed Anna like a shadow. Like a long, persistent, unswerving black shadow, he went after the girl. It irritated Brangwen exceedingly. 
It exasperated him beyond bearing to see the lit-up grin, the cat grin as he called it, on his nephew's face. And Anna had a new reserve, a new independence. Suddenly she began to act independently of her parents to live beyond them. Her mother had flashes of anger. But the courtship went on. Anna would find occasion to go shopping in Elkston at evening. She always returned with her cousin, he walking with his head over her shoulder, a little bit behind her, like the devil looking over Lincoln, as Brangwen noted angrily and yet with satisfaction. To his own wonder, Will Brangwen found himself in that electric state of passion. To his wonder, he had stopped her at the gate as they came home from Ilkston one night and had kissed her, blocking her way and kissing her whilst he felt as if some blow were struck at him in the dark. And when they went indoors, he was acutely angry that her parents looked up scrutinizing at him and her. What right had they there? Why should they look up? Let them remove themselves or look elsewhere. And the youth went home with the stars in heaven whirling fiercely about the blackness of his head, and his heart fierce, insistent, but fierce as if he felt something balking him. He wanted to smash through something. A spell was cast over her, and how uneasy her parents were as she went about the house, unnoticing, not noticing them moving in a spell as if she were invisible to them. She was invisible to them and made them angry. Yet they had to submit. She went about absorbed, obscured for a while. Over him, too, the darkness of obscurity settled. He seemed to be hidden in a tense electric darkness in which his soul, his life, was intensely active, but without his aid or attention. His mind was obscured. He worked swiftly and mechanically, and he produced some beautiful things. His favorite work was wood carving. The first thing he made for her was a butter stamper. In it, he carved a mythological bird, a phoenix, something like an eagle, rising on symmetrical wings, from a circle of very beautiful flickering flames that rose upwards from the rim of the cup. Anna thought nothing of the gift on the evening when he gave it to her. In the morning, however, when the butter was made, she fetched his seal in place of the old wooden stamper of oak leaves and acorns. She was curiously excited to see how it would turn out. Strange, the uncouth bird molded there, in the cup-like hollow, with curious, thick waverings running inwards from a smooth rim. She pressed another mold. Strange to lift the stamp and see that eagle-beaked bird raising its breast to her. She loved creating it over and over again, and every time she looked it seemed a new thing come to life. Every piece of butter became this strange, vital emblem. She showed it to her mother and father. That is beautiful, said her mother, a little light coming onto her face. Beautiful, exclaimed the father, puzzled, fretted. Why, what sort of bird does he call it? And this was the question put by the customers during the next weeks. What sort of bird do you call that, as you've got on the butter? When he came in the evening, she took him to the dairy to show him. Do you like it, he asked, in his loud, vibrating voice that always sounded strange, re-echoing in the dark places of her being. They very rarely touched each other. They liked to be alone together, near to each other, but there was still a distance between them. In the cool dairy, the candlelight lit on the large white surfaces of the cream pans. He turned his head sharply. It was so cool and remote in there, so remote. His mouth was open in a little, strained laugh. She stood with her head bent, turned aside. He wanted to go near to her. He had kissed her once. 
Again, his eye rested on the round blocks of butter where the emblematic bird lifted its breast from the shadow cast by the candle flame. What was restraining him? Her breast was near him, his head lifted like an eagle's. She did not move. Suddenly, with an incredibly quick, delicate movement, he put his arms around her and drew her to him. It was quick, cleanly done, like a bird that swoops and sinks close, closer. He was kissing her throat. She turned and looked at him. Her eyes were dark and flowing with fire. His eyes were hard and bright with a fierce purpose and gladness, like a hawk's. She felt him flying into the dark space of her flames like a brand, like a gleaming hawk. They had looked at each other and seen each other strange, yet near, very near, like a hawk stooping, swooping, dropping into a flame of darkness. So she took the candle and they went back to the kitchen. End of section 11. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown.